0: visit the all in gospelcom website. All right. I got every traffic light. Oh. Okay, so we're in Genesis 15 tonight. Um I won't say how far we're going to get. I've moved the clock over here so when we get to about a quarter after, I'll try to wrap things up uh, wherever we're at. That way, I don't have to rush, but if we don't finish, we'll just stop where we're at and pick up the next week or something like that. And that way, uh, those that need to get to Vespers still have time to do it. Uh, We are Genesis 15. uh, We are moving our way through. We started the book with the entire planet being the focus. Then we zoomed in on humans in general and humans in general went wicked and God floods the earth to start fresh with Noah's family. Uh, and then it goes back to humans kind of spreading out or not spreading out and God having to give languages to again, uh, slow the wickedness of humans. And then since Genesis 12, we've been zoomed in on one man, Abram and his family. So we have this focus and the focus is largely because of a promise that God's made with Abraham, that he's going to build something out of Abraham's, uh, family and that his family will bless the whole earth. Um, And we are looking for Messiah in the same way that he promised Adam and Eve that someday that there would be uh, a son of man, a son of Eve that would repair this curse that the world has. But the world seems to be cursed. Abram's under that curse too. And he's been carrying on his life serving God. We've seen Abram screw up. In fact, the story of Abraham is him having a moment of faith where he does the right thing and then he does the wrong thing. And it's this cycle as he matures in his faith where he keeps getting back on track. He backslides, he gets back on track and he's setting up an image or a reflection of all of our lives in Christ. And when you come to God, that there's this process of maturity that you go through. Well, Abram's growing up, he grows up quick. And in comparison to his nephew, Lot, Lot walks over by the wicked city of Sodom. He leans his tent towards the city. He sits in leadership over it and he's entangled in a war that ruins him. And all of his stuff gets divvied up amongst uh, Abram's allies, and the new ruler of Sodom that comes to take all of Lot's things. So Lot's basically destroyed. Abram, on the other hand, is a lot different. And I was running into, uh, actually, Tim brought up Psalm 1. So if you could start tonight over in Psalm 1, hold your finger back in Genesis 15. And um, But Psalm 1 describes a guy like Abraham, that this is a guy that instead of walking, leaning, and sitting towards evil like his nephew, he's going to do the opposite. He's going to walk, stand, and uh, uh, sit with the Lord, and he's going to do the right thing. So Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. Well, Abram's prospering. Whatever he does, he seems to prosper. And in the last, last time we met, it seemed like he had allies, that there's a city, there's a priest that serves the most high God. And he seems to be taking this love of the Lord and sharing it with other people as it should be. So Genesis zoomed in on this one guy and it's this one family, and uh, we get to see how hard it is for somebody to give everything they have to the Lord. And Abram's going to have that. And he's going to even have some strife in, in his own home tonight with his own wife. So God's going to talk to Abram again in Genesis 15. This is right after he gave away all the loot from his little battle with the uh, Babylonian and the Persian kings. Uh, he went over with 500 men, 300 men, kicks some tail, comes back, gives everything to this new king of Sodom and says, you can have everything. Uh, What a great moment of faith. Um, And he doesn't have a lot of doubts. So we start in verse one. And I'll read a little bit and come back to verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram, I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said to the Lord God said, Lord God, What will you give me, seeing that I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is is my heir. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and he said, Look, now towards heaven. Count the stars if you're able to and number them and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So God again speaks to Abram. He's in Canaan. He's on his own. He's doing the right thing, and God makes this same promise to him. You're going to have this inheritance, but that's super tough. Remember, um, do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. You're exceeding a great reward. Of course, Abram, when you poke the bear, there's probably a little piece of Abram that's scared that the Babylonian, the Persian kings are going to get a bigger army and come back straight for him. So when he does that, there's this point where I'm sure he was a little bit worried that there could be some repercussions. So God's assuring him, I'm going to be your shield. I'll, don't worry about it. And I'll be your reward. Prosperity in God's eyes doesn't have anything to do with money. And, and Abram just gave up a ton of money. And God says, I'm your reward. And I think that's kind of a cool thought. We also see that there's a variety in how God talks to Abram and others. This time it's the word of the Lord came. Um, and, and there's a vision here in that kind of piece. Um, the word shield is uh, is an actual buckler or shield back in the day. It's what you use to block a sword blow. So when somebody's going to come and attack you and, and take you out, what you use is you put up your arm and it has some sort of buckler or shield on it. Um, and it's what you use. So when the Lord says he's our shield, it doesn't mean we're not going to get attacked or there won't be tough times in our life. It means that when those things come, that the Lord's there and will protect us from the, the killing nature of those blows also the idea in verse one of an exceedingly great reward, that word's mehod uh, in Hebrew. Uh, It's often used with other intensive or superlative words, especially when it gets repeated. It's kind of like when we say, oh, that's greater than great, or that's really, really good. Um, So usually that word exceedingly is when they say something great, and they interpret it as exceedingly great, but a literal interpretation of it would be to repeat the word that it's talking about, so it should be the, I am your shield. I'm your great, great reward. I'm your great, great, great reward. Um, that there's a, an element to that. So God's relationship with us should be worth more than any money that we can make in life. It should be the thing that is our silver and gold. Verse two, Abram but Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? In other words, we're talking about these rewards and his response is, What will you give me? Seeing that I go childless in the air of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is not my heir. I get the sense that Abram's kind of saying, Lord, you're not my top thing. I want a son. You promised me a family. I don't have a family. He's getting old at this point. But basically, he's asking for this son. It's actually really gutsy, I think, if the Lord's talking to me in a vision, and he makes me a promise, I think my gut instinct would just be to say, thank you. So Abram's relationship with God is actually strong enough and mature enough to question God. And I think especially in the church in America today, oftentimes we forget that questioning God is something that's the sign of a mature believer, that we say to God, but God, what's going on with this? And how's that going? Because you actually have enough faith in God to trust that he can handle your complaints um, and trust him in that sense nothing else to Abram's really reward then other than this promise that God's made to him. Um, But I like the idea of bringing honest questions to God. When I struggle with things to actually bring that. Um, There's two different kinds of doubt then in the Bible. So one of the critiques of that idea that we question God sometimes, and this is why I'm kind of setting this up. I don't think this is Abram being unfaithful or doubting God. And I think there's a kind of doubt that denies what God is and what he's promised. But then there's the kind of doubt that desires God. I don't see it now, God, but you promised this thing, and I want what you've promised. And that's, I think, what Abram's doing here. It's not that he's attacking God with his doubt. He's actually trusting that God's there, but he's impatient. He's like, I don't see what you see, God. Eliezer, if you translate that in the Hebrew, interestingly, is God is our help, is the literal translation of that. So when God says, I'm your shield and whatnot, Abram's actually responding by saying, you know, Eleazar, God is my help, is my inheritor right now. And he's not even of my family. I didn't actually bring him into the world. Eleazar then is some sort of a key helpmate. He's from Damascus, which is not coming from Chaldeas. So he's made another ally here. And it's like he's kind of got a number two around. He's got his ranch hand or his um, second in command that's there. And of course, he's going to give everything to Abram. Um, He's not a son of Abrams, but he'd be, you know, spiritually speaking, a brother of Abrams. And he's when I go, I don't have kids, you can have everything. So he had uh, a will, so to speak, to hand everything over. Verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall not be your heir. That came to him, there is actually this idea of like, he showed up to talk with him. So there's this idea of he arrived at his house, or he came to him in that sense. This one shall not be your heir, but one who one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now towards heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. In other words, God's saying, I got you. He said it in Genesis 12:2. He said it in 13:15 through 16. And he's saying it again here. I've made you a promise. And when God makes a promise, it's going to happen regardless of what we think or, or how long it takes. God's still going to wait after this conversation with Abram. It's still going to be another 15 years before he actually gives Abram his son. Um, So it's interesting um, that God's knowing what's going to happen, but he doesn't seem to bother to tell Abram how long it will take. And that's going to get Abram in trouble in in the next chapter. Similar to the dust of the earth promise, this one, in other words, he's saying it again, your heirs are going to be countless. Verse 6, and he believed in the Lord. And he, accounted it, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. I'm going to stop on this one. In other words, wow. Don't read over this too quick. If I were just reading this in my own Bible study, I fly past verses like this. But think of what just happened here. God basically says, God, I question what you're doing. Help me out with this. God reasserts his promise. And Abram just says, okay. And he believed in the Lord. And the Lord said, this is what it is. And that's what it looks like might be one of the more beautiful verses in the Bible. And it's why it's accounted unto him for righteousness. And he, we're, we got to go back to Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews kind of points out that Abram, it's accounted into righteousness. It's not enough for us to believe in God. And and it says he believed in the Lord, and he, and, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abram doesn't just think that the Lord exists. There weren't a lot of atheists when the Lord's talking to people and that sort of thing it's that he believes in the promises of God. And they're very different things. It's the first word use of the word believe in the entire Bible. And it's one of our commands that we need to believe. Again, Genesis, you get all these really first first time for this. In a conversation, believing in what God's promising, not in what God's, that God exists. And today we say, oh, I believe in God. It happens to mean that we believe he exists. Um, But in this context, it wasn't about that, obviously. It's that he's believing in God's promises. James 2.19 says demons believe in God. So there's, even at James's time in the first century, they're trying to make a distinction between these two things. Believing in God and believing in his promises are very, very different things. I always like C.S. Lewis in the Narnia books. He calls this the deeper magic. This accounted to him for righteousness. The law that the Israelites are going to get as we keep reading forward is not here yet. So what makes us righteous is the belief in God's promises, not in following the law. And that's a key principle of the Christian faith. It's a huge principle. And we get all that in this verse. And they point that out again and again in the New Testament. So accounting to righteousness. Did I do it too quick? To account unto him as righteousness is the Hebrew word to think or meditate with calculations in mind. It's, an, it's actually accounting. So when someone tallies and numbers and weighs the balances, the pros and cons, so you weigh all the good and evil and everything else with Abram. And the only thing that sits on the good side of the scale with Abram is that he believes in God's promises. And it's the same today. It hasn't changed. It's the deeper magic. It's the rule. It's the thing that goes beyond all the rules and regulations of our faith. If we believe in God's promises, we are accounted as righteous. If we believe that his promises are true and his promises that he's going to bring a Messiah that would counteract the work of Satan at the creation. So if you believe that that's happened and the Messiah has come and risen for your sins, that's the same thing that he's saying about Abraham right now. And it's accounted unto him righteousness. So we can do all the wrong in the world, but at the end of the day, if we believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise, it's accounted unto us as righteousness too. But don't take my word for it. Go into the New Testament and start looking this up. So if you want to go to Galatians 3, we see a clear commentary on this. I'll wait on this, Galatians 3. I'll give you a bunch of other references too, but on this one, Paul is basically saying the same thing. In fact, this is one of Paul's favorite verses. He uses it in Romans three different times, and this idea of it was accounted unto Abraham as righteousness is what all the new Christians used when they were preaching the gospel, because they were largely preaching the gospel in Jewish synagogues, where they would say, but the law, but the law says this, and the law says this, and they say, actually, if you believe on his name, you shall be saved, and it'll be accounted unto you as righteousness. So in Galatians 3, verse 5, therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of of faith? just as Abram believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. We actually are in the tradition of Abraham. And so was Eleazar of Damascus. He was a Gentile, right? He wasn't really of the Jewish line. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel to Abraham before the law or beforehand, saying, in you, all the nations shall be blessed. So so then those who are of the faith are blessed with believing, in Ab- believing Abraham. When we read the story of Abraham and we look at his faith and we try to Im- imitate it, we're essentially doing the same thing um, when we believe in Jesus Christ, because we're believing that that promise was held true and that God kept his word. Further, we're believing the promises that Jesus made, that he would come back. And we live in hope of Jesus Christ. This isn't weird, kooky theology, This is absolute throughout the Bible kind of core Christian theology. Um, And this happens before the covenant of Genesis 17. So this is even happening before the covenant that God makes um, and this idea of circumcision when Abram changes his name to Abraham. So this is actually pre-Father Abraham. And I think that's part of what's so cool here. So suddenly this is not ancient history. This is actually what we believe today. Do you believe Abraham who believe the Lord. Do you believe Jesus who said he was the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham? We have faith in God, we're given parentage in the kingdom. Interestingly, Jew- Jewish genealogies here here is the key. Faith like ours is the ticket or our justification. So when Paul says the faith of Abraham and we have faith with Abraham, we actually become sons of Abraham. And that's where for Paul for okay, let me say this again. The Jewish people believed you couldn't go to heaven unless you were part of the Jewish genealogy. They had real issues with Gentiles, that the faith was cutting off Gentiles. And Paul started to say, "Uh uh-uh, the parentage for all these non-Jewish people, their parentage is Abraham before the law was given. And he was going to bless all the Gentiles. These are the Gentiles. So we as Gentiles, when we come into the faith, it's actually accounted unto us as righteousness if we believe that faith really is everything we do. Then throughout the Bible, we're just going to see this common theme. God keeps proving himself and his promises to be true, and humans keep not believing those promises. And we have the same kind of thing we can do. So God says, here's the logic of this passage. God says, I'm in this, Abe, and I'm going to bless you. Abe questions him, then God answers, and then God Abe believes, and then God does some accounting. And that same logic structure goes with us. God says, I've called you into the kingdom. We say, I don't know, I want to go my own way. God then answers us and continues to bring our hearts towards him. We believe in him, and then God does some accounting. And that accounting is really simple. If you believe in his promises, you side yourself with God, he accounts you as righteousness. And it's just that simple. What's weird is even in the church, we tend to make it more complex than that and there's nothing in the Bible that makes it more complex than that. It's why even an idiot like me can talk about the gospel and get it right. Even a five-year-old can get the gospel, understand it, and share it with people. But what do we do to that five-year-old to tell them that they're somehow not capable of teaching the word or preaching God's love to other people? So the simplest of beliefs is where people are. It's that first love with we have. At the end of the day, this is epic. This book just got interesting because it doesn't only tell us how the world got created and how this stuff happened and how languages happened and how the flood happened and all this kind of stuff. It also tells us how our faith is going to happen. It's going to happen when we believe God's promises and it's coming unto us as righteousness. I'll move on. Verse seven. Then he said to him, I am the Lord Jehovah, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I'll inherit it? Pretty, pretty bold because Abe's still pushing it. <laughs> How am I going to inherit it if I don't have kids? Lord, you, you got to get my question here. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him. He cut them in two down the middle and placed them each piece opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down in the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is weird. There's a few different weirdness things here, <laughs> right? So Abram's coming out of Ur the Chaldeans. We're reminded about that because God just said it. And this whole ritualistic thing with animals, note that, well, note a few things. God never says to kill the animals. He just says, bring me the animals. Then Abram brings them and then he starts chopping them in half. Where did he learn to do this? Who told him to cut animals in half? Where did all these rituals come from? And they come from humans. They come from Abe. And I think it's interesting how the Bible doesn't goof that up. It, it words it in that kind of way. God's doing this because Abram is asking for some sort of sign. He's asking to covenant with God and to make an agreement with God. It's never been needed for sacrifice, even though sacrifice is in the law largely with these same animals. It's never been needed. We've never needed a sacrifice, but God allows sacrifices so we as humans feel more like we're making a covenant with him. There is symbolism here. We give life or you kill an animal and God blesses us for the life we gave. So you take your best cow, your best sheep, your best ram, your best turtle dove, and your best pigeon. Um, You kill them and God then blesses your life for the life you just gave him. You give something up, you get something back. It's the first time in the Bible we see a deal being made with God where we understand that there's supposed to be a trade-off. Or Another way to interpret this, I said this was weird. Here's a totally second way to interpret this. When you make a covenant with God, you seal all that you own to this. So some people believe in ancient traditions they would cut animals in half and you'd walk down the middle of the animals. And we're going to see God walking in the middle of these animals in a few verses. But the idea of that is that you're making a seal while you're stepping through all the blood, that that blood is a covenant where if you don't keep your promise, God's going to take everything you own, like the animals that just got killed, so they too will be divided. Or a third interpretation of this: that when you split the when you split the animal and you walk between them, this is Dave Gusick's interpretation. It's to make a blood covenant with two other people. That there's two parts of the animal and there's two people making a covenant. Either way, no matter how you interpret this, the common thread here. Um, And a lot of these, it's interesting. You believe what you want. The common thread here is Abram's clearly trying to make a deal with God. And he's going to make some sort of uh, attachment. If you go to Jeremiah 34, verse 18, gives us another glimpse at this kind of ritual. It says there that the meat or the fowls of the vultures and the beasts of the earth couldn't touch these animals because that would ruin it. They're supposed to be you don't let anything happen to the animals until God talks to you. So the fact that Abraham's chasing away the vultures means that God wasn't coming to meet with them and make this deal with them. In other words, Abraham's trying to get God to move and God's going to move in his own time. And we'll see that in the next couple verses. This explains, however, the relevance of the vultures going and the sun going down is that God's waiting. He's not walking through this deal with Abraham. And for God, of course, he's timeless. He could do this whenever. So the weight is clearly to make Abraham's heart change. And I you know, because God could just be there and walk through it right when Abraham has, but he doesn't. Makes Abraham wait. <clears throat> Notice that Abe gets a longer picture or the the weight that he's gonna have keeps getting longer. God doesn't make deals with humans. That's kind of my point. He's gonna he's gonna covenant with Abraham, but he's gonna do it on his own terms. When God says yes, it means yes. When he says no, it means no. And a lot of this is the cause of this is because Abram keeps questioning. So he waits for Abram to fall asleep. In verse 12, we see that now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he, God, said to Abram, I know, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years. This is the first time we see God telling Abram anything negative about what's going to happen with his descendants. And I wonder sometimes if this is because Abram questioned him and that it's the same way that Moses kind of questioned God. And then God said, okay, well, you don't get to go into the Holy Land. All the next generation will get to go, but you're not going to if you would have just trusted me in the first place, I wanted to bless you. But at this point, you've so corrupted the relationship that I have, I can't do it that way, because you've already tainted it with questioning and everything else. And the 400 years, uh, you know, we're talking about the time they spent in Egypt, that comes true later. Verse 14, also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterwards, they will come out with great possessions, a lot like Abram did. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried at a good old age. I like that phrase. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. This could have been part of the plan all along. But I wonder sometimes when God keeps unveiling these things that there's layers to his prophecies that he lets them uh, see in a time. The iniquity of the Amorites is an odd little phrase. God seems to be giving them some time in order to maybe repent or to fulfill the wickedness where he sees them as going to a point of no return they will afflict them for 400 years. We see in Exodus one, that they are, there's another famine, Joseph's brothers head down to uh, Egypt, and Joseph takes them all in. And when all the brothers come down, all of Israel is kind of hanging out in Egypt. They're there until Moses comes and gets them out. Verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down, and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch, that passed between the pieces. And this is the idea that that's where Jeremiah's phrasing of this ritual was kind of the thing. So Abram doesn't walk through the pieces. You're supposed to walk through and then the other person walks through. In this case, only God seems to be walking between or passing between the pieces. The smoking oven reminds us of the pillar of the cloud that represents God in Exodus 13. The smoke on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And even God's Shekinah glory that we see in the temple in 1 Kings 8. So God represents himself as a cloud and a number of occasions, as we're going to see in the Old Testament. This is the first time he represents him as a cloud. It's also the first time we see him as a torch or some sort of fire or burning flame. That's reflective later on in the Bible. God's going to represent himself in Exodus 13 as a fire by day in a burning bush before he stands before Moses in the form of flame in Exodus 3. And then there's fire from heaven that sometimes consumes sacrifices. As that God's well pleased with. So when there's a good sacrifice and God's pleased with it, in 1 Kings 18, 1 Chronicles 21, and 2 Chronicles 7, uh, I'll say those again. 1 Kings 18, 1 Chronicles 21, and 2 Chronicles 7, God blasts himself down as a fiery furnace and consumes things right off the altar. Verse 18, on the same day the Lord made or he cut, the translation of that word is actually he cut a covenant with Abram, which is an interesting phrase. He cut a deal. Um, cut a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenesites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Note he didn't mention the Salulites, which are the large people from much up north. There's a spiritual agreement that is clearly a promise. This is real ownership of the land. He names the land. He names the people that are living in it. The only time we've in the Bible that even gets close to this ownership of the land is under Solomon, which seems to be the biggest Israel ever gets. We've still seen, we still haven't seen Israel take this territory. So if that's a promise, if God's telling the truth, that particular promise hasn't really come true yet. Note this is a one-way covenant. As much as Abram wanted to make a two-way covenant, to make a two-way covenant with God means that you're equal to God. And God just doesn't do that. He waits for the human to fall asleep. And I think that's a great image. And God makes the covenant that's a one-way covenant. He's going to promise Abram something, not the other way around. How many times do we try to make deals with God? How many times do we know people that try to make deals with God? I have one person who I won't mention because this is recorded. <laughs> a, a, somebody I've loved dearly my whole life, but he's not a believer. And he's somebody that comes up and he, and I remember he said, okay, Sean, I tried it. I asked the Lord to come into my heart. And then I sat there and nothing happened. And he writes this to me, sends it in a letter. And he's like, I did it. I did the thing. I prayed the prayer, nothing happened. And I said, and I wrote him back. I said, what do you expect to happen? Like fireball, fireballs come shooting out of the sky and lightning bolts echo your prayer. And you're a human. Like at some point you want to, you really want to give your heart to the Lord. Don't do it as a test." Don't try to make a deal with God. Don't say, God, if you get me through this battle, if you get me out of here alive, I'll give my whole life to you. If you want to do that, great, give your life to God. But don't think that God's going to somehow be a puppet that you get to control by making a deal with him. And I think that's what Abram was doing here. And because of that, God's going to not let Abram see the blessing that he wants to give him until he's going to live to a ripe old age, but he's not going to see any sort of fruition of what God's offering. God's not a puppet. He doesn't operate that way. Neither does he do that for us. The promise of our faith is already established. Jesus has died on the cross. He did it for all of us. You can believe it. You can give up your will and you can serve God and love your neighbors. And that adds righteousness to you. That's the deal. And it's a one-way deal. It's what God's already given us. So Abe's trying to deal with God. And now, now in the if we go to Genesis 16, the first word is now. Now actually means 10 years just went by. Now, here's a new story. So Abram gets that promise. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid servant whose name was Hagar. We'll get to her meaning of her name later. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram, heeding the voice of Sarai, then Sarai. Abram's wife took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. After Abram dwelt in 10 years in the land of Canaan, that's where we get 10 years. So he went into Hagar and she conceived, because that's what happens. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Now Sarai, verse one, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. This is the thing that, of, of course, Abram's upset about, what he complains to God about in the last passage. Sarai means princess. She is Abram's princess. It could have been an affectionate name. Um, It's a wonderful name. You think of Abram and how much he loves his wife, the dearness that she has to him. And I'm going to present this story is that this had to be heartbreaking to Abram. When she comes in and says, I want you to I want you to get your son. And he's been telling God, I want a son. He's been praying for 10 years for a son. And Sarah is coming to this conclusion as she reaches her elderly years, I might not be the one to give this guy a son. So as an act of quote unquote love, she says, why don't you take my maid, this maid from Egypt, why don't you take a little bit of the world so you can be happy and you can get this thing you want. And that's the core issue that God, I think would ask us to have faith in him instead of doing these kinds of things. And we're going to see a great tragedy happen here. So just like when there was a famine and Abram took things into his own hands, Sarah's going to encourage him to do that again here. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Um, so she would have added to this troop when they were down in Egypt, which most commentators feel is an image of the world. So Abram's going to dabble with the world a little bit, and he's going to get involved in that. The word Hagar means flight or to take flight or to run. And we'll see why she gets that name later. I wonder if that's a prophetic name, because she's going to run and flee, or if it's a name she got later on, and that's just how we know her. This idea of Egypt, notice that Egypt is mentioned twice in verse one, and then again in verse three. Uh, It's key to the writer of this scroll that we know she's an Egyptian woman, that that's where she came from. So Sarai said to Abram, "'See now, the Lord has restrained me "'from bearing children. "'Please go into my maid. "'Perhaps I shall obtain children by her.'" And Abram heeded her voice as Sarah. Sarah knows how much this means to Abe, but she's blaming the Lord for her context. The Lord has restrained me. Yet we know she's going to make children. So a lot of times I think people think if they have kids or don't have kids, that that's something where the Lord's punishing or something like that. Lord's not going to punish Sarah. He's going to make her one of the most most blessed women in the world. He's just just not doing it in the timing that she expects that to happen. We also see echoes of Eve's appeal to Adam when she brings an apple to him and says, hey, try this out. Sarah is giving in. She's doubting the Lord. She's coming to Abram with a proposal to have this young lady. She says, I shall obtain children by her. Culturally speaking, this is extremely common. We see it in, across all ancient civilizations. When you have a maid in your household and the mom of the household isn't making children, they would often do this. In fact, in some societies, you would have kings that would have hundreds of wives, and we'll see that later in the Bible too. But this idea of leaders or men that are over, or you know, large kingdoms and things like that, and Abram we can see has men that work under him. He's operating a large herd, sheep herding organization. Um, that this is not uncommon at all. It's what the world does all over the place. So essentially, Sarah is not asking something to our modern ears. This sounds really horrible. But she's basically saying, look, the world does this. They do it all the time. Um, It's common for you to have relations with women in our household. Um, And she's asking him to act like the world and to do what the world does to get his children. And then she would be the mom of that child, theoretically. Problem is Abram's never done this. he hasn't done this in years. If he was going to do this, he should have done it a long time ago back in his 60s or 70s. Um, but here he is in his old old age and he hasn't done it, but at this point he's going to give into it. heated the voice of this was really interesting when you look this up again, get your strongs and look this up for yourself. There's actually two words here for heated the voice. The first word is kole. There's 49 uses of Kolay in the Bible. It almost always means noise or clamor, right? There's 12 uses of the word where it means thundering. So when Sarah comes to Abram, and he heeds the word of her, he's actually like, he's listening to or he's he, obeying the will of the thundering and the noise that his wife is bringing to his doorstep. In other words, there's an implication here that Sarah is asking Abram to do this again and again and again. And at some point with this persistent asking that his wife is doing, he gives into it. And he kind of does what, you know, in judges, they say people do what's right in their own eyes. And that's the sin here. He knows he shouldn't be doing this, but he's doing it because everyone around him says he should do it. I'm going to say as a husband of 20 some years, there is zero part of me that would have any interest in this. And I kind of think when I read Abram, and I think of him as a brother in the faith. Who loves his wife, who did everything he could do to keep her, made a dumb decision in Egypt and almost lost her. But his whole idea was he wanted to keep his lovely wife. I just can't imagine feeling good about this situation. And I think we'll see evidence that in here in a few verses. For me and my part, I don't mean to embarrass my wife, but sometimes we think in the world we live in that's so flooded with physical relationships on every movie, every TV show, every song that we see, we forget the fact that in Christ, there are some men and some women who actually want to just have relations with one person for their entire life. There are actually some guys that don't have eyes that wander. And there are some wives that don't want their husband to have sex with their maids, right? Despite what WB says, despite what NBC says, despite what Netflix says, there are some people on this earth that are just holy. And it amazes me how on TV shows, when you see people that wait for marriage and people that are true to their spouse, they're like pariahs in the media right now. They treat them like there's something wrong or broken with them, a lot like the Roman Empire did. Most ancient civs or pagan civs assume that there'll be infidelity all over the place, just like we see in our media today, but that's not true. And I know a lot of guys that have been faithful to their wife for years. My grandparents were faithful to each other for 50 some years and happy. The beautiful part about being true to your spouse is that it leads to joy. What's going to happen here is this doesn't lead to joy at all. It leads to strife in the home, chaos and jealousy, and a and it changes the history of the world, some would argue, to be one of conflict. Verse three, then Sarah Abram's wife took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So he's been waiting for 10 years. God does not justify this. Frankly, this act is questioning God's will. And one thing is, are we shaping God or is God shaping us? And Abram giving into this, he's being shaped and every decision we make shapes us and who we are. And in this sense, it's kind of there. Sarah sadly hands the world over to Abram, but she doesn't come as a spouse and give him God. What a better gift we can get from our spouse than to lead them to the Lord and point them to Jesus. And Sarah doesn't point Abram to God and say follow the Lord and I'll follow you. She points him to her her maid and says here have a nice young lady in your bed so we can have this kid we want. They're skipping God's plan. They're trying to put their own plan in there and it just leads to destruction. So in verse 4, he went into Hagar. I could translate that for you in the Hebrew, but I think everybody knows what that means. And she conceived because that's what happens when you do that. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. This is also super common, not just in the ancient world, but today's world in some cultures. Women that can have babies have higher status than women that can't. So when she has a baby after one try with Abram and Sarah's had decades to give it a go, uh, um, Hagar starts to treat Sarai horribly. To say, I'm better than you, and I should have a higher rank than you. So we're getting into Greek tragedy land at this point. And we've started drama in the household because of this kind of infraction. Um, and Hagar starts, because of her fertility, starts to claim the top female role in this organization. And she's acting like she's better than Sarai. You got to imagine Sarai feels hurt she feels wrong. She feels damaged. This is somebody who worked for her that now thinks she's the boss of her. And instead of appreciating the home that Sarai has provided, Hagar starts attacking. This is what you'd call workplace conflict or an unsafe work environment, um, harassment of sorts. Sarah is being challenged and being upset and hurt and angry. She runs into Abraham and says, well, she says, then Sarai said to Abraham, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maiden to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her art, in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. My wrong upon you. Sarai is not the person of faith that Abram is. She's actually putting this on Abram, and she should be. He had sex with her. So he could have said no to this whole affair. He'd probably been saying no, which is why the voice of or the thundering of um, had to happen to get him to change his mind course, this causes conflict then between Abram and Sarah. And she says, let the Lord judge. Um, in other words, she accepts the wrong, my wrong, but she puts it on Abram. My wrong be upon you. I know I did wrong here. I probably shouldn't have done this. But now it's on you because you actually did this. And then look at the conflict I have to deal with. I have to deal with Hagar calling me names, picking on me, treating me like I'm less than she is. So there's hurt here she tries to get Abram to come into the conflict with her. We see people do this all the time. When they're hurt or they're angry, they run to someone else and try to bring them into that hurt and anger. She asks to judge, Lord, judge between you and me. This is to pronounce sentence or to avenge. Um, and we see that, that, that request for judgment is something she wants here. She wants Abram to step in and make a judgment call. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. In other words, Sarai has an authority in this household like the queen would have in a kingdom. She, she's in charge of this person works directly under her. And Abram said, doesn't want to break that chain of command. So do to her as you please. And when, dealt with, when Sarai dealt with her harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So Abram responds, I think, like a mature adult. And he says, you and Hagar seem to have a problem. Why don't you and Hagar deal with it? you're in charge, I affirm your authority, deal with Hagar however you want. The other piece is, and this is my indication where I think Abram gave in to this, even though he didn't want to, I think Abram doesn't want to have anything to do with Hagar anymore. He did his duty, he did what his wife asked, and he doesn't actually want to deal with this person anymore, which is why Sarai even has to come and tell him about the drama, is because he's so tuned out to this drama, uh, because he's walked away from it. In other words, he's saying, I want to stay out of this, I don't want to do this. She was your maid. She's your person to deal with. So he sends them to talk about it and to deal with it. The word harshly means to afflict, to humble, or to force your will on someone else, to be harsh to someone. Now, the angel of the Lord, so okay, so she does that. Sarah treats her harshly. remember this conflict started by Hagar treating Sarai harshly, and then Sarai's response is to treat her harshly. The drama keeps escalating. It gets bigger and bigger. We actually are in, in, in well, I said we're in this drama world now where everybody's upset with each other in anger. Um, and Hagar's running away. In verse seven, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the way of Shur. I think that's interesting that if you look up where sure is at, it's right on the border between Palestine and Egypt. Hagar is going back home. She's probably this young girl, maybe in her teens or twenties, and she has this woman who's in, has way more power than her that's in charge, who's coming after, harshly opposing and humbling her, um, belittling her, and she just says, "I'm out of here," and she's probably fearful that Sarah's going to kill her that happened a lot. And we know that there's been there's killing all over the world at this point. So she's running away. So here, God intervenes with young Hagar. And this is the first time we see God talking to a female. But he picks a female who's oppressed, chased out of the home by herself in a wilderness that we know is a wicked world, and um, probably in great danger. So this isn't the kind of world you want to be running around in by yourself, even if you're a guy, but much less a young lady who's pregnant. And it's beautiful to think that this is where the Lord has mercy. And he said in verse 8, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. So she's fulfilling her name uh, to flee or to run angel here is a word called malak. It means a dispatched messenger of God or an ambassador, a representative, or a king. It's the first time we see the use of the word um, angel. Um, And we're going to see it another 214 times, a number of times right in here in this passage. Um, But the angel of the Lord is where we're coming. Some people believe this is another Christophany, and I'll show you why in just a little bit. But if it is a Christophany, um, what a beautiful thought that God himself comes down and meets with people when they're in trouble. And he catches her in the wilderness. He identifies her as Sarah's. Um, In other words, her identity is tied into Sarah's. And I think that's kind of a beautiful thought. Hagar, Sarah is made. Where have you come from and where you're going? Also notice that she only answers the first question. He says, where have you come from? She's going to tell him that. And then he says, where are you going? She doesn't know. She's just getting. She's just running and she's going. And I think that points to the, the heartbreak that had to be in her. Sometimes when we run, we know the troubles we're trying to run away from, but we don't necessarily know where we're going or why we're going somewhere. We're just running. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress, submit yourself under her hand. Hebrews 13 talks about remembering your leaders, obeying your leaders, salute your leaders. There's three passages there in verse 7, 17 and 24 in Hebrews 13. All three of them are this this message from the writer of Hebrews that it's okay to submit yourself under someone. Even when they're treating you harshly, he's asking Hagar to go back, be part of that home. How you're treated isn't what I'm asking you to worry about. The fact that I need you to go there and that's where I've called you to be, that's what I want you to worry about. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about submitting to one another. There's a different idea with submission. Submission is, in a godly sense, submission is to put yourself under someone because you know they love the Lord and they're walking towards Christ. The world's idea of submission has to do with chains and slavery and it's negative. And when they read some of these passages where it says to submit to someone, the world reads that and just sees that as slavery and oppression. But a godly person reads that in a biblical sense of the term. We see this, and again, this is a first, submit yourself under her hand. It's the first time we see in the Bible where God's asking someone to submit themselves. And he's doing it because God has a plan. And sometimes when you submit yourself, you can bring healing and grace, and you can actually change the person you submit to, because they don't understand why you're submitting when they've been treating you so harshly. It's one of the ways God uses to change hearts. Um, In Ephesians 5, he talks about Christians submitting to one another, he talks about husbands and wives submitting to one another. Um, The idea of submission in a godly sense is to sacrifice yourself because you love the other person so much. So you you bless yourself, you put yourselves under them. And to submit to someone another also means you bring yourself from a place of not agreeing with someone to agreeing with somebody. And that's hard for us as humans. We don't like to do that. I'm sure Hagar thought she was right. It's why she mistreated Sarai in in the first place. He gives her two commands. Go home, submit to Sarai. Look how God knows how it all starts. He also knows that Sarai's harshness was caused by Hagar's disobedience and defiance. Sometimes we get disobedient and defiant. We treat people a certain way and then they react with anger and that justifies what we did in the first place. I love how God goes straight to it. Hagar started this. Hagar can finish it. And if he and if she goes back to Sarai, apologizes and submits to her, he can she can end what she started, and God sees through that. Verse ten. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, "I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so they shall not be counted for multitude." Whoa, he's making a promise that looks a lot like the one he just gave to Abram. In other words, he's going to bless her for what he's asking her to do: go home, submit to Sarai, and then the deal is, and he makes a covenant with her and says, "I'm going to bless you." And verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. <laughs> I like that you get, you're gonna have a kid and the Lord tells you and he's gonna be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand shall be against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Ishmael means God will hear. Gotta listen to you. And I'm sure as Hagar's running away from Canaan and running back home towards Egypt, I think it's interesting that it seems like she was talking to Jehovah. In other words, Abram's household had in influence on this Egyptian. She was serving to and talking to, and God was making promises to her as though she was one of his children. And I'm so blessed by that. I'm so glad that God didn't decide to only love Jewish people but he takes people and he makes them his children and he does it out of belief. And I think that's such a cool thought. It's prophetic of the Arab people. Ishmael is going to be the father of all Arabs. And there are still in modern Middle East, there are Bedouin tribes of Arabs that are wild. They go wherever they want to go. They move their camels where they want to move. And they live this life of not having a home and not being there. Uh, We also see that throughout the history of the world, the Arab people have been at conflict not only with each other, but with everyone around them and with Israel. And they're going to be in conflict with them for up until today. We still haven't seen peace between the Arab people and the Israeli people. And we're in, it's one of the key centers of modern news is this conflict between these people. And it has been for thousands of years. Verse 13, then she called, I love the end of this chapter too. And I'm glad we get to end on these last few verses tonight. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. One, one uh, set of two words combined. For she said, have I also seen him who sees me? Therefore, as the well was called Be'er Lahairoi. Roy. Observe, it's between Kadesh and Bered. It almost invites you to look this up in the Hebrew, doesn't it? Just throwing these things in there like, we should look this stuff up so I did, just for your convenience. <laughs> you are the God who sees is El Roeh. So again, we see the Roeh come up in the name of this well too. Um, you are the God who sees is El Roeh. It's two words, El, the God or God, and Roeh, to see or to see things. And it's to combine them as one word, which is why the dashes, most, most translations have little dashes between those words. It's because it was all combined into one in the Hebrew. What a beautiful idea that to name God is to say, you're the God who sees us. And she's out in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere, and there's God waiting for her at a well. Just like the Samaritan woman comes to, and Jesus is there, and she's coming to get water, and Jesus is just waiting for her at the well. And remember, she goes back, and a whole city comes down to meet Jesus. And then he turns to his disciples, and he says, look, the harvest is plenty. Look at how, look at the work that we have to do here. I don't need food. This is my food. I need to give and serve these people. That idea that God can find us anywhere and that he sees us to a godly person, to someone who seeks God, that's a beautiful thought. To someone who's in defiance of God, that's a horrendous thought. That's a horror movie thought. The fear of God is in everybody, but for some people, the fear of God leads them to God. And for some people, it leads them to hate and ignore God because they don't want anything to do with a God who sees what they do and what's in their heart. But that idea that you must be the God who sees me, what a beautiful thing. And I just imagine this young girl who's pregnant, running, crying. She's at odds with her mass mistress, and she just did what she was told to do, and now she's running away, and there's God waiting for her. And I just, it gives you a glimpse of the character of God that he even cares about Hagar, that he goes out of his way to minister and serve this young girl. Have I also seen him who sees me? Isn't that a, a curious question? notice that the angel of the Lord never answers the question. And I think that's pretty cool. I imagine a little bit the angel just kind of, are you also the God who sees me? And the angel just kind of looks at her and go and just smiles a little bit, like a little quirky smile, maybe even a wink, right? Mm-hmm. Are you the God who sees me? And he just kind of winks. And then he gives her a clue. Um, if you look back... Uh, in verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants. Do angels do things or do gods do things? And that's why people think it's a Christophany is because the angel, most of the time when we see messengers or angels, they don't claim that kind of action for themselves. So some people, most people that read this believe this is actually Jesus sitting by the well waiting for the young lady, just like he did with, Samaria, with the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman was also an outsider to Abraham's uh, genealogy um, in the same way that Hagar is an Egyptian woman. And that's been mentioned twice. Ber lahai is the well of the living one who sees me. It literally translated. Kadesh and Barad, and, and it's, uh, Kadesh means holy or sanctuary, generally a holy place where you can be safe. And Barad means to hail or greet someone literally, these are both town names, but it's like in this passage, it says, observe, it's between Kadesh and Bered, um, where we were all already told kind of where it was, they're saying the well of this name is extremely appropriate. So in obeying the message of the Lord, it's almost like, translated, it's like saying, so it's between a holy sanctuary and saying hello, this Is how that would be translated. Beher Roy, the well... Beher lahe royoi, the well of the living one who sees me. And behold, it's right between a sanctuary and hello. And there's this place, there's this good place that's in this happy place where we meet God. And I think that's interesting how the writer put that together and said, look at how this works. Look at how interesting. It's like the writer wanted us to see that God will say hello to us and he'll provide a sanctuary for us. This angel of the Lord comes to Hagar in a key moment in history. And then we see the epilogue in verse 15 and 16. So the end of the story, the moral of the story is, Hagar bore a son, bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son. In other words, she did go back to him because he was there to name it. And Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. It doesn't tell us that she told him the name or anything like that, but he does get named Ishmael. 16, Abram was 86, or in your translation, it might say four score and six years. Uh, which is where Abe Lincoln got his phrasing when he did the Gettysburg address. But Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram, and that's the end of this chapter. So we see an end. Life application and summary or ending thoughts on this sort of pieces. I just spent the whole week totally blessed by this thought. I hope you pick this up, that God loves us, and God sees somebody, no matter what turmoil or drama, we create in our lives. God's still watching. He's still hovering over us and he just loves us. And I love that image, and that's kind of my takeaway from this passage. I love the image of just Jesus sitting on a well, hanging out, waiting around for Hagar to show up, and then she shows up and then the angel of the Lord came to her, the messenger of the Lord, said here we are and that Jesus is our messenger. He talks to us. And he came to us and directly talked to us. I don't know if it's a Christophany or not. A messenger can say, I will as the messenger from God. So that part for me is not a real struggle if Jesus showed up before the New Testament or if he showed up after. But I'm certainly, I also don't have a problem with God being capable of doing that and Jesus being around during this time too. But I love the thought that Jesus will meet us where we're at. We can be in the wilderness, we can be in the darkness, we can be in the middle of the sin of giving our husbands away to some maid and giving our maid away to some husband, and God can still be there and meet us. And he's actually looking out for Sarah here, because she's going to have this person come back and beg forgiveness. And there's going to be this restitution and remediation there. And Abram's going to deal with her because he's naming her son. So he's going to claim this son as his own, and that son's going to be raised in Abram's house. And I think that's just a beautiful thought. There will be more troubles with the story of Ishmael and Hagar to come because Abram's not perfect. But I like to end on that thought. And I'm going to end on Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Abram should have never listened to his wife in this. He should have kept his own counsel with God, nor stands in the path of sinners. He shouldn't be getting in the middle of these situations where people are in conflict, or sits in the seat of the scornful. And Abram does kind of avoid this kind of thing. Abram looks more like this his delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Abram does some pretty weird things, but even with Ishmael, it's going to prosper. Ishmael's descendants will be countless, just like Abram's son will be countless on this earth. And that whatever Abram does, it seems to prosper him. And prospering is not just to get rich, but it's to have the fruit of God in your life. That's a beautiful thought. So with that, we've just knocked off another two chapters. Let's say a word of prayer and we'll be done. Dear Lord and King, we love you. Lord, thank you for being the God who sees. Lord, I just pray that we, you see everything. You see when we're being devious. You see when we're being hateful. You see when we're jealous. You see when we covet stuff, Lord. You see when our eyes stray um, on anything that's not you, Uh, Lord. And you still forgive us as sinful as we have been since birth, Lord. As much as we've screwed up and failed, you still lift us up. And we just thank you for that. We thank you for your holy word. We thank you that we can read about Abram, and he has had generations of people reading his mistakes. So we thank you for that transparency. Um, We thank you that in your Bible, your heroes aren't perfect. They don't have thunderbolts shooting out of their fingertips, Lord. Uh, They're not mythical, they're real human beings that we can relate to. We thank you for that honesty, that candidness. Uh, We thank you for the gift of these stories, Lord, so we can try to be better. And we can try to serve you in righteousness and holiness. May your spirit guide us in this. And Lord, we love your Christophanies. We love when you show up when we don't expect it. We love when we're in the wilderness, Lord, and we're, and you're there with us. Uh, so Lord, be with us in all things. We thank you, Lord. I just thank you so much for the jobs that are happening and the 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 uh, the the nervousness that that causes for um, the people in this Bible study, Lord. So I just thank you that the jobs are are happening for Levi and they're happening for Zach, Lord, and they're getting these interviews. And I just pray that you help them to represent themselves well in those interviews and what they're doing. I thank you so much for that. Lord, I just pray for your blessing. Uh, May you go with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.